Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Curious Competitor Podcast. I'm your host, current New Jersey Devils defenseman, Connor Carrick. Super excited today to announce our guest, Randy Hetrick. He is the founder of TRX. Uh, this was all after achieving his MBA from Stanford University, which was on the back end of a 14 and a half year career as a Navy SEAL squadron commander. He's an exceptional individual. He does not uh, look the other way when challenge comes knocking at his door. I know I learned a lot in this podcast today, and, and thank you for joining us wherever you are in the world. Let's do this. All right, Randy Hetrick, man, what's up? How you doing today? Where are you? Uh, where are you at on on quarantine? Are you out west? Yeah, I'm in uh, Marin County, which is just uh, just across the the bridge from uh, from San Francisco, and and uh, I live in a little town called Mill Valley. And you know, I mean, all things considered, it's not a bla- bad place to be quarantined if you got to be quarantined. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but I'm up here in my you know my office over the garage like everybody else, and uh, and uh, I I'm looking forward to things returning to normal at some point, whatever that new normal may be. Yeah, me too, me too. Starting to get a litchy. The Stanley Cup Finals just ended last night with Tampa Bay winning, and congratulations, you know, sick team played against them. They were they were dangerous all year, and. And it's some, you know, added some key parts there at the trade deadline. Blake Coleman was a, you know, devil teammate of mine that went on to win there. Well-deserved. Um, but Randy, I, I think when I first, uh, Patty Hubbard with Brand Ford, who helps me, you know, design the podcast here week in, week out. She recommended you as a guest. Well, first off, I used TRX. So as soon as she brought up, you know, Randy Hetrick with TRX, I was like, oh, so that's sick. I, I you know, I'm familiar with the product. And then she, you know, brought me to speed on your background as, you know, Navy SEAL and then going on uh, after retirement with the SEALs to, you know, go to the Stanford uh, Business School, you know, and then graduating on to be the entrepreneur you are today. As a current athlete, I'm really interested in, you know, for sure, how you have this mindset that's so clearly ambitious for challenge. It's not something you look the other way at, clearly. Some would Um, call it a pathology, right? (laughs) One, I'll let one you that say I'm, that. Yeah. One that I'm trying to outgrow in my old age, honestly, Connor. It's it's uh, you know, there's a point in life when you start to realize there's there's a, a law of diminishing returns that applies to the, you know, the pursuit of challenges, right? The pursuit of challenging stuff. Um so yeah, but it it has definitely been a factor in my life for the first, I don't know, I'd like to say half. I'm probably past the half point, but you know, my granny lived to be almost 104. So I've got a pretty good shot, you know, at, at being maybe at the midpoint now, uh, with a little bit of, of the benefits of modern medicine that are yet to be developed out there in front of us. Um, but yeah, in the second half, I'd like to maybe back off that, that challenge meter just a little. Well, and see, I relate to that because, you know, I'm 26 now, this next season will be my eighth year pro in the national hockey league. I'd like to think I'm still in the first half, you know, but a 16 year career is no joke. And, and, you know, to play past 35 is a huge accomplishment, especially with how fast the game's gotten very similar. We're from a performance standpoint, you know, I was always a a go, go, go guy, you know, very um, motivated by, you know, especially as a kid, like fear of being cut jealousy, um, you know, from what other players had, I wanted what they had. And what I found was as I started to, go up the ranks into pro hockey, 
that fire would burn a little hot and there, I would ride the emotional highs and lows of a season, uh, to a point where it was taken away from high performance. It was taken away from my ability to stay even keel, you know, and there was just so much comparison to be had. If that's what you wanted to do, if you wanted to stay at home at night and consider how you were playing versus another guy that you thought you were as good as, you know, as his career, you know, there's 31 teams playing every night in the national hockey league that I couldn't, it wasn't sustainable, you know, so sort of, uh, the second half of my career, let's call it that has been, you know, really trying to pursue the same. How do I keep the same grit and competitive edge at the rank, you know, where, you know, I want to take someone's head off, but also, you know, dialing it back come family time. I am married. You know, I just told you before we started, uh, my wife and I announced we're pregnant, you know, last week. So a couple different roles come into my life here, um, you know, in the next six to 10 months. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, Hey, you, to even be thinking about that at the age that you're at, I think is, is a sign of, you know, an evolved, uh, EQ because I, I want to say, I, you know, in my twenties, I was, I was so focused on, um, you know, being the best frog man that I could be on, on the next, you know, getting to the next level, whatever that level was, it was never the level where I was, was never good enough for me. Yeah. And it was always this, you know, this idea that there's another, there's a peak to get to that is above the one that I stand on right now. And I think, um, you know, that's a healthy instinct for sure for a person that wants to achieve uh, some significant level of accomplishment. Because if you're not driven that way, then doing stuff that is extraordinary is, is you know, there's sort of extraordinary is is a synonym for hard in a lot of ways too, right? It requires a huge amount of commitment, a huge amount of time, risk, all the things that go with extraordinary achievement. And, um, you know, if you don't have that as a motivating driver, then you're probably not going to, you know, you're not going to get that high in your climb. But at some point you start to realize, right, well, how high is high enough, right? And, and, and where is the, where is that place where you where you can sort of spiritually get to homeostasis and shift your focus a little more towards some of the stuff like you're talking about? You're, you know, you got a kid coming. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, you know, kids will change everything in your life, uh, mostly for the better, but they'll change everything. And and, um, you know, that takes a significant amount of energy and you want to be a great dad uh, or mom. And and so at some point you have to start, you know trying to figure out how to transition your brain from just this singular, you know, as I, the way I describe it is I used to have, you know, this big, you know, bongo drum that would just drum loudly that would, that would drive me toward my next goal. And, you know, over time I'm starting to feel that, you know, the drum's a little softer and, and, and maybe it's more like a snare drum now, you know, not, not so much the giant bongo, but, but it, uh, I think that's, uh, that's a sign of, you know, of, of evolution and, and maturity. And at some point, you know, you need to, to arrive at, at that homeostasis where you're happy with what you've achieved. You know, you've got some good, some good challenges, maybe still ahead of you, even if they're not quite as epic as the ones that you, that you have in your rearview mirror. And, you know, you start to evolve into, into a little bit more of a, of a, I, I, you know, people use comfort zone negatively, but wouldn't it be nice to live life in a comfort zone if you could figure out how to do it? And, you, you know, I think true. that's, that's part of my, part of the next 
the next part of my journey is figuring out how to still take on, you know, fun challenges, but do it for the sake of the fun, the learning, accomplishing something cool, and not quite so much just to prove, right, that I can do it. And, and uh, you know, it's a different mindset. Oh, that's beautifully put. And Randy, so how do we get to today, you know, as the founding operator of TRX, you know, it's an awesome uh, training vehicle that I've had in every weight room that I've ever played on from the U.S. development team on now. Um, you know, you're, it's, it's 1997, you're a Navy SEAL at the time. How does TRX come to be? Well, the, the original, I mean, TRX today is, is a much broader stanced training brand, right? Than it obviously was when, <clears throat> when I started. Um, today, we sell pretty much everything that, that you would train on that isn't a machine, right? We kind of draw the line at, at if it doesn't have, you know, hinges or tracks, then it's, it's probably in our wheelhouse. Once you go to, to machines, then, you know, there's other people that do great machines and, and that's where we stop. We sort of define ourselves as, you know, living within the functional training realm. Yep. Um, but way back when in 1997, right? Number one, there was no TRX and there wasn't even an inkling in my, in my eye of, of, uh, you know, that there would ever be a, a TRX. I was just trying to solve a problem on a deployment where, you know, we would deploy and I'm, you guys, you know, I'm sure face this at some level in your career back, back at home, you've got an amazing facility, everything you need, but then you get on the road Right. And and a lot of that goes away. And I, I would guess even with the, you know, probably the reciprocal uh, agreements that you guys have when you travel, you still don't have your full complement of stuff. Right. That's your usual, yep. your usual stuff. Well, imagine, you know, as a commando, like you got nothing like you deploy, you don't. the last thing you, you load up on the pallet is, you know, weights. Right. Much less a treadmill <laughs> or, I mean, that's, you're, you're deploying with operational gear and whether it's, whether it's a, you know, a mission or whether it's a training mission, uh, it's still the same. You're always, there's always this battle over, you know, how, how little stuff you have room for. Everybody always thinks that, you know, we need more room for more stuff. And so training gear is one of the easy things to knock off the list. And so we would deploy you know, all around the world and you'd get there and then you'd have nothing to do. And, and depending on where you were and what the complexion of the deployment was, you know, you may or may not have the luxury to go out and go for a run, right? If you're on an actual operation, yeah. you're certainly not doing that. But even in, you know, even in a lot of the training deployments, like, you know, you don't just take off in the third world for a run, right? There's, there's a lot of risks that come with that kind of stuff. So you end up stuck in a confined area, trying to figure out how to stay in shape. And on one of these ops that I was on, I was trying to figure out how to train the climbing muscles to get up the side of a ship on a caving lab, right? With a bunch of gear on my back. And there wasn't anything in this little warehouse where I was hanging out to do pull-ups on. Uh, and I had accidentally deployed with my jujitsu belt that I that I'd scooped up off the ground with my flight suit stuffed in a bag and didn't realize I had it. I got over there and I'm like, well, what the hell am I gonna do with this thing? You know, and and then I just literally had this spark of inspiration to was staring at a bathroom door and I thought, you know, what if I tied a knot in the end of this thing? And I I threw the threw the strap over the top of the door and closed the door. I wonder if I could if I could lean back and load 
you know, my body and, and seals have a big tradition of body weight training. And I'd been a wrestler mm-hmm. before that. So same thing, a lot of body weight, a lot of rope climbing, a lot of pull-ups, you know, and I had that orientation. And for some reason, I just got this sort of spark of inspiration to, to, to try to recreate this motion, right. But loaded. And, and so I went over and hung back off this jiu-jitsu belt and, and it, it had no handle, which was great because that worked on your grip. Yep. Yep. And like towel just, pull-ups or something similar. Yeah. yeah like towel, exactly. Like towel pull-ups. And then I, you know, which again, from martial arts, right. From jujitsu, you're always doing, mm-hmm. you know, hanging off each other's geese and strengthening your grip. And I, I just, I thought about the move and I leaned back against gravity and then I pulled myself up. Right. And then I leaned back again, pulled myself up and thought, damn, that actually works pretty well. Got a little more body angle on it, loaded it up more, you know, and it was more than enough weight, right. To, to train that. And, and today, right. All I was doing was trying to, trying to create a movement for my sport, right. That, that I could reinforce in, in my training. And, and today we call that, you know, functional training. It's pretty much the definition of functional training. Um, and it just, you know, it, it, it kind of, took off as you know from being on a on a team full of alpha males right the first thing they do is mock you and then very quickly after that they're like all right get out of the way let me let me try this thing you know and and it just kind of took off and and buddy started saying to me you know hey boss make me one of your gizmos i'm i'm you know i'm going on the road and uh, i had another buddy who was a parachute rigger who liked to drink beer so we cooked up this little you know uh relationship where where he would call me and say hey you know can I make, you know, Connor, uh, one of your gizmos? And I'd say, sure. And then you'd buy him a case of beer and you'd get your, you'd get your gizmo, which is what we lovingly called it at the time. And that was it, man. And it, and it, it just kind of, you know, I, I optimized it to a point, yeah. but I, I wasn't viewing this at all as a business. It was just this cool tool that I'd come up with and guys liked it. And that was that. Right. And I, I didn't really think about turning it into a business until after I had left service and went to business school at Stanford. And when I was there, um, I had the good fortune to, to get invited out to train in the athlete training center. And I'd go out there with my, my goofy straps and hook them up to the, you know, to the squat racks and I, and any excuse not to study. Right. So I was, I was in pretty good yeah, shape. No and, and, um, you know, I'd obviously been at, at this whole training business for a long time. So, you know, the coaches who were in there with their teams would look over and be like, what in the hell is that guy doing? And, and they would always come up and ask me, you know, hey, what is this thing? You know, first they'd ask, like, why are you so old? Because I was about 36 at the time, right? Everybody else wandering around and there's like 18, <laughs> yeah. 20. And, um, and then, you know, I'd tell them about it. And 10 minutes later, they'd be asking me if I could make them for their team. And they'd be telling me all the things that this, this weird contraption you know, which is like the lowest tech fitness product mm-hmm. in history, but they would be describing for me all the things they thought it would do for their athlete. And that was interesting, right? You're at business school, you're thinking about business. And, and I just kind of decided, wow, maybe, maybe there's something in this. And, uh, you know, I used the second year at business school. I used the, the first year to kind of kick the tires on the idea a little bit, used the summer to really, to really dig in and, and start, um, you know, trying to answer some of the questions like, where would I get this made? Uh, how would I, if I were going to evolve it into something a bit more gentrified, how would I do that? So I spent the summer between, you know, my second, 
first and second year of business school, kind of in my garage, optimizing the straps. And then I flew over to Hong Kong and, you know, found somebody who would, who would take pity on me and make like little tiny, you know, short runs because I was not buying a lot of inventory. Yeah, and, right. um, and by the second year I'd kind of decided, all right, uh, I think I'm going to give this a go and, and I'll, you know, I'll use every class in my second year at Stanford as a, as an incubator, basically to build the marketing plan, build the finance plan, you know, think through, uh, how I'm going to build a team and a culture and all the things that go with being an entrepreneur. And then, uh, you know, after I graduated in, uh, middle of 2003, I just decided, all right, I guess this is no time like the present. So How was that transition going from the service of very alpha male? Like I, I, Doubt you use the same language and same tone, you know, with your SEAL team members as you would, you know, in a classrooms, for example, at, at business school. And I'm, I'm curious just because I'm going to be, you know, in that boat someday where, where my career is yeah. over and there is going to be a, a second, a second act. Yeah, well, transitions are, I mean, transitions are not easy, right? They, you know, and I, I don't envy you when you make your, your transition because I'm sure you're going to go through you know, a lot of, of the same things that I did and that every other, you know, anybody who's ever served in an elite unit, sports unit, military unit, it does, it really doesn't matter. Uh, if you came from a place where you'd been this certain thing for a long time and you'd worked really hard to get there and you were very proud, right, of, of what you'd done and, and of, of the contributions that you and your teammates had made and, and really that sense of camaraderie of being part of, of this team that, you know, that does things that are unusual and extraordinary and important. Man, when you suddenly are no longer part of that team, there is a, um, I, I guess I would describe it as sort of a, an emotional vertigo that happens where no matter how much you think you're confident in who you are and in your abilities, you really go through this really significant fall. And I had one of the most privileged transitions from the military that I could imagine, right? I went from being the squadron commander at the special missions unit to Stanford Business School. That is hardly a, you know, a, a, a hard knocks transition. And yet it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And trying to re regain my grounding, trying to, you know, recast myself first for myself and then in the eyes of everyone else um it was hard man and it it, it took uh it took me a number of years to kind of get to peace with you know i'm no longer a navy seal right i'm an ex-navy seal and now i'm an entrepreneur and at that point you know a fledgling one right without without many accomplishments and with a uh, a huge host of challenges out in front of me yeah. and it, it was hard man i mean it was it was one of those things you definitely want to get yourself ready for and and just understand that no matter what kind of plan you think you have you, you're probably gonna you're probably gonna struggle a little bit yeah the way i always pictured it was like having to have a a literal funeral like this identity this part of you that you, i've spent you know so much time integrating into my dna since i was four years old i've played this game you know, and every single day I wake up, bang, it's hockey time, bang. Like, well, when's the next game? When's the next practice? For I'm 26 now, it's been 22 years. I've, it's been my entire consciousness, you know, since I was a young boy. And, 
you know, part of that we were talking about before we started the podcast about why I started. Part of it was to have some of these conversations. Maybe I have my TRX moment, you know, uh, listening to, you know, another podcast or another guest talk about, you know, whatever their uh, market needs, sort of how, you know, your fellow servicemen started to tip their hand that they were part of the market for what you were going to eventually sell in the straps. I think, uh, you know, so one of the big turning points, what were some of the big turning points in the success of TRX? I understand, um, you know, a lot of athletes took to it right away. I think uh, we've always tried to reverse engineer our results similar to, you know, your thought process around, okay, if I want to train the climbing muscles, this is what these movements have to look like. And this is what, you know, the relationship with gravity has got to be very similar where, you know, when I'm training, I'm trying to think of, okay, what are, you know, the high rate, uh, you know, rate of return skills out there, you know, for sure the best players in the league is skating. Okay. So what training styles would, you know, benefits, uh, skating, but when it comes to, you know, turning points, like, like trampoline moments for the company, you know, after, you know, the initial struggle I'm assuming was tough, you know, with the small order, uh, numbers and that, what were some of the marquee moments that have gotten you to the, you know, size of TRX is today? Well, I mean, we, you know, we started something that was pretty hard, which is that there, there were no straps, right? There weren't any. The, the closest thing was gymnastics rings, but that was CrossFit's infancy as well when I was starting out and, and, you know, they hadn't really figured out or popularized rings yet. So rings were basically viewed as something gymnasts used in the gymnasium, Mm -hmm. right? And, and so trying to convince people you know, you can imagine talking to your strength conditioning coach and, you know, me trying to convince him or her that, you know, you really ought to be giving this, this strappy thing, you know, some time. And people would look at it and be like, look, dude, do you see me? I, I lift a little bit of weight. Maybe you didn't notice, right? What am I going to do with your cute little strap? And, and that, was, that was challenging. And, and, you know, I would honestly, I, I probably did 500 gym pitches in the first three years this business was alive backpack full of straps i'd go i'd call i'd find the fitness manager i'd beg borrow you know steal to get 30 minutes of of their next uh staff training hour because they would schedule these things monthly um you know and i and i'd say look i'll leave a few of these behind to to you know compensate the gym for the opportunity and then i'd get in there and for 30 minutes man i'd sing for my supper in front of you know, a dozen, two dozen trainers. And, and generally what I'd have to do is immediately take the biggest, baddest, like stink eye looking dude in the group and then quickly get him on the straps and crush him, right? But let him crush himself. Right. And then I'd have to backpedal really quickly because everybody else would be like, well, shit, if this thing crushes Connor, I don't have any, I don't have any clients that can use this, right? So I'd, I'd have to backpedal and I'd say, okay, now look, we just showed some of the most advanced stuff with Connor because of course I want to make you feel good and successful, right? Yeah, Even though it creates an open mind, like some humiliation, you know? Yeah. Well, but if you leave somebody feeling humiliated, especially guys with big egos, right? They may say, ah, screw that guy, screw that thing. Yeah. So, so it was this, I had to learn quickly this art of taking somebody out of their comfort zone, but then quickly backpedaling back into the realm of the average Joe and complimenting, you know, the guy who was brave enough to step up and, you know, and, and be subjected to that little trial. And, and then I'd get everybody on it, 
you know, and I'd run around and try to make everybody as, as successful and comfortable as possible. And then I'd walk out of there not knowing whether, you know, did I hit any of the targets that I was shooting at in there? But usually one or two would come up and they were always kind of the early adopters, right? The, yeah. the folks that were, were interested in mastering their craft and getting some competitive advantages. And they'd come up and be like, you know, I'm interested in this. How do I, how do I follow up with you? And um, so that was, you know, that was one kind of phase of the business that was both challenging, but also inspiring because every time you, you know, you'd peel off a couple more people from that group and your, your database of interested parties keeps growing, you start to realize like, all right, people who know their craft and who, you know, who wouldn't patronize this product if it didn't work or they didn't believe in it they're starting to show interest. So that was one of them. And, you know, then I went to a trainer trade show pretty early in the business and we sold out everything we had. And that was another one of those moments when you're like, all right, somebody loves me, right? Maybe not, you know, everybody, not yet, but somebody loves me and somebody who, who, who understands how fitness and kinesiology sort of work has made the assessment that, you know, this is going to add something to the state of the art. And um, so, you know, you, you sort of, I, I don't view, you know, I've told people this before, like the tipping point in, in the sort of Gladwellian sort of way, I, I don't know that in my experience, there's been a single one. I think there've been a series of them. And I kind of liken them to false summits, right? If you're, if you're, if you're out in the, in the woods and you're trying to summit, a mountain, you're going to run into false summits several times along the way because that's how mountain ridges work, right? You see the highest point from your vector, then you get up to the top of it and you realize that not only is it not the highest point, but in fact, I got to go down into a <laughs> yeah, canyon, close. right? And, and then you get to the next one and repeat. And, you know, it's only like way, you know, way, way later that you actually get to the top of the summit. Um, and, and so I think tipping points are that way, right? Each one propels you a little higher, but most times there's not, there's, for most people, there's not one giant tipping point. You know, I had, I mean, when Drew Brees, when we got to help Drew recover from his, from his labral tear, and then he ended up, you know, getting on the, the, you know, the Cinderella story with the Saints and Katrina and then they won the Super Bowl and Drew was the Super Bowl MVP. You know, that was a huge help to us because he, you know, he had become a good buddy of mine and was was a big fan of of what we had helped him, you know, recover from. And then he was just a great guy that took good care of us at every chance he he had. That's you awesome. know, he 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 you know, throw, he'd pitch us on on what we'd done for him and that helped a lot because it got a lot of guys like you who might have been sitting there reading Sports Illustrated Right. Suddenly going, huh, what's this strap thing? I might have to check this out. Right. And, and suddenly every strength conditioning coach who all reads Sports Illustrated, right, they, they started going, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I need to check this out. And so, you know, that was, that was a series of them that I just described um, that all kind of kept encouraging uh, me and my tiny team that we were on the right track. Super cool. That's super cool. And what I think has been 
the one of the reasons I was so excited to talk uh, to you on the podcast because you know two fields that I really enjoy learning from. Uh, one is the entrepreneurial side. I think the world of business is just filled with brilliant people, super creative, super persistent, uh, and they're usually very open with their stories. Athletes, not as much. Sometimes we're a little bit more closer to the vest. We finally got you know the Jordan documentary out. You know on uh, you know a couple months ago that was awesome. But when it comes down to there's two sides of you that I think are super cool is, you know, the, your time in the service as a Navy SEAL and now your successful entrepreneurial venture as an athlete, what are, you know, some lessons that you've been able to draw independently from each that if you could gift me something in terms of your advice and you know, your, your two cents on something that you wish you could teach most athletes, right? You're friends with Drew. I'm sure you're a sports fan. Um, you know, what advice would you give to an athlete like myself? Well, I mean, man, I try not to be in the advice giving business too often because it implies that you really know, you know, what the hell you're doing. And of course, none of us really do. We all just sort of do our best uh, at it. But, you know, I mean, from the perspective of a guy that's 54 years old and has been in the, in the physical game for a long time, right? Long time as an athlete, a long time as a tactical athlete. And then subsequently as an entrepreneur making his living in athletics and fitness, right? So I've got a pretty long view of the, of the domain. And I, I think that one of the reasons why people uh, in business like to hire athletes, accomplished athletes, is because the level of discipline and, and sort of self-analysis uh, that's required to to achieve a high level of athletic performance uh, ends up converting really, really well in the business world. Um, certainly in, in, you know, in the world of small business, you really have to be hard headed and hard driving because there's just an endless series of, uh, you know, headwinds that, that you face. And, you know, once a, once a business has been around 30, 40, 50 years, they still have challenges, but they're different challenges. They're not, they're not breakthrough challenges, right? They're, they're sort of sustainment challenges. And so, um, you know, I know a lot of early stage entrepreneurs really love hiring athletes. And I think that, you know, if you think about the things that have made you successful as an athlete, it tends to be, you know, number one, you got to have that internal drive and, and you have to be driven at some level by a fear of failure and underperformance. That's just sort of what drives most of us, right? Um, and you also need to look at your career, not just, uh, I think you said it when we were chatting before, you know, it's, it's not either just the long run or just the short run, because if you, if you focus on one or the other, you end up um, missing part of the puzzle. You know, you got to be you got to be short term focused, and I always tell people that you know the bet the way that I know to get through hard things is I I always focus on the next ten meters of trail, right? And I've been I've been focused on that since I was going through selection and the teams. Um, you know, if you if you you set your sights too far in the future and you keep your attention out there, uh, it, life's too hard because you'll you'll hit setbacks. You'll start to you know, the guys that quit during, during buds or the ones that, that let, they, they lost their perspective that, hey, if I just chip away at the next evolution that's in front of me, and then, and then that leads to the next one, and pretty soon I'm through this day. And then, then I just start thinking about tomorrow. I don't start thinking about next month. I start thinking about tomorrow. 
then each day I can win. I can have little victories, right, that build toward a big victory. If I start thinking about, oh my God, we're only three weeks into this torture and I got another six and a half months of this. Well, then I can start psyching myself out, right? And if, if you were thinking, you know, oh, you know, all I want in life is to be the, you know, the most valuable player in the league. All right, well, that's a good goal. But if that's how you're defining, right, your success, the odds are you're going to realize at some point, yeah, maybe I'm not ever going to be that. And then what's that do to you, right? It, it sort of deflates you. Deflates, yeah, momentum. Yeah, so, so you really need to, you know, focus on the short term so that you're, you're executing, you're, you're, ex you're creating new victories that you can celebrate for yourself and you're, you know, you're actually making progress. But you also have to have in mind the idea that, all right, if I want to be in this game for a long time, I got to take care of my body, not just beat the bejesus out of it, right? I have to pay attention to sleep. I have to pay attention to my mental health. I have to pay attention to my family because those things will break you, right? And a lot of times young guys don't realize how, how derailing things like, you know, an overuse injury can become a family meltdown, right? A lot, a lot of careers get ended from divorce and, and it's not because of the divorce. It's because of all of the, the, uh, all the cloudiness that, that that creates and the distractions and the, the, the mental stresses and pressures. So I think that, you know, you got to take a long view if you want to be in your career, in your career as, a, as an NHL player, but, you know, for anyone else, you have to take that long view and make sure that you're not doing things in the short term that are working at cross purposes to you uh, surviving and thriving in, in your chosen uh, vocation, you know, over the course of a decade, not just over the course of a month or a quarter or a year. Yeah, I like that. Cause I've, I've, I've dealt with that earlier in my career where I would go into seasons and I think I just expected perfect years. Like I, I, you know, was just shocked at, you know, uh, I'd be pulled off a power player, I'd get hurt. And I would think, you know, uh, this season just isn't going the way I, I wanted to. And now I'm a little older, I've been through it, you know, um, and I've been able to train that ability to, to have a more realistic plan. You know, so like one of the things I'll do, it, we'd normally be in training camp right now. Uh, but in August, you know, like you start to get on the ice, you train all summer long. So the first month, you know, uh, if you're out around the first, you know, round of the playoffs, it's like May, maybe you take it, you know, mostly just training. Uh, and then June, you're on the ice, you know, three times a week, July's four or five. And then August is five and six. And you're really starting to ramp up for training camp. One of the things I've started to do is picture like go through the emotional tolls and just think to myself, am I ready? Like you can't go through the storm expecting not to get wet. Like you can't go through a hockey season expecting to wake up, you know, uh, you know, fresh as daisies every day after the night before, like you're going to get hit from behind. You're going to get pucks, you know, to you. And I think that I had a better relationship with momentum that way and resiliency that way where, you know, I, I don't want to say that I stopped, setting goals. I started to set goals that were just more realistic. I started to appreciate the ups and downs of a year and just how the perfect season doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, you just described a metaphor for life too, by the way, if you didn't notice, I mean, it really is. It's, it's uh, a lot of this stuff, 
you know, presumably when I'm 75, there'll be a lot of shit that'll be clear to me that I don't see right now, but there's a lot of stuff that's clear to me now that I didn't see at 25. And, and, you know, I think, I think that, that reappraisal of your goal set as you go along is really important. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned in there briefly was just the way that, that you mesh in with the team. And I know that when you, when you look at older athletes, the, the particularly ones that, that have the longest, most successful careers, they have to have an evolution from me to we, right? There's, a, yep. there's an interesting, because initially we all want to be the playmaker. We want to be the driver. We want to be the guy on the stage, right? We, we, we want to will our individual contribution to achieve whatever our, our goal is. And then as time goes by, there, there's definitely a shift that has to happen um, toward, all right, what becomes more important is the team's victory, right? Like how the team, and, and, and even not, not winning or losing necessarily, but victory in a more holistic sense. Like, are we performing to our, our ability? Are we, you know, generally winning more than we're losing? Is it a well-functioning organization? Right? Are, are the guys, uh, on the, in the case of a, of a sports team, you know, are they relating reasonably well to each other? Do we have all kinds of internal garbage that, you know, that's, that's cropping up? Or is it a pretty harmonious team? And as you get older, your role as, as an individual contributor has to become a bit, more, a bit less of an all-star and a bit more of a mentor right? and, a, and a, a, some glue that holds the group together yeah, the glue for guys. a couple yeah for, for a couple reasons right number one your physical abilities decline that's just like the the hard reality it's it's uh you know you're approaching like the zenith of your physical career right in your late 20s yep. and after that you know it doesn't mean you can't still perform at a very high level it just means that it gets a little harder you know your fast twitch is not quite as fast as it used to be uh, and so you might have to become more of an endurance guy because mid thirties, right. Is where most people's endurance sort of peak. So you just have to constantly be re reappraising, Hey, how can I add value and stay in my wheelhouse? Right. As, as a contributor and I'm doing that right now, honestly, like, you know, in case you think it's like, yeah, sure. An old graybeard guy, it's easy to talk. I'm doing it right now. I'm recasting myself. I have moved out of the CEO role mm -hmm. uh, in, in charge of the operational day-to-day -day at TRX. And I'm shifting more into promoter in chief, right? Um, and I'm, you know, focusing on some of the areas where my long-standing knowledge in the industry and my aptitude as a as a kind of a MacGyver ghetto engineer you know, allow me to create solutions to problems that I've seen for a long time in the industry, but nobody solved. Well, why not? I can solve that. So, you know, so my role is changing. Again, every time I think that I've, that I've, you know, sort of reached stasis, I realize, nah, the only constants change, you know, now I'm, I'm shifting into another role. And, and I, you know, and I'm starting to think about some, some new ventures that, um, that, I believe there's an opportunity for that nobody's nobody's tackled, and so that's an example of even as a business guy, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs hang on so long 
uh, entrepreneurs tend to be great at the startup phase and the, you know, and the creation phase, but they're not temperamentally suited for the most part for that maintenance corporate manager phase. But if you don't have somebody who really is flourishing as a corporate manager, then your organization, once it reaches scale, it'll wallow and, and fail, right? Instead of continuing to grow, but bigger and, and more slowly on a larger base and with more process. And, and that's really not my gig, right? That's just not, that's not what turns me on. So if I were to, you know, doggedly adhere to that role and say, no, by God, I founded this thing and I'm going to run it till the day that, you know, it dies. Well, it may die sooner than I wanted it to. Right. And, and so instead I'm, I'm trying to recast myself in the best area of sort of my wheelhouse uh, of expertise and my, in the wheelhouse in terms of my ability to contribute uh, the most to my organization. So that would be a piece of advice I would offer to a guy like you, right. Is as your career keeps progressing, start to, you know, I, I know you would say you've been a great team player the whole time, and I don't doubt that, but I don't think it's, it's undeniable that early in your career, you focus more on your own individual contributions and, and, and what you can, uh, you know, what you can achieve than later in your career where you should be really starting to focus on, hey, how can I help the team uh, in whatever need, whatever way the team needs me to win, you know, as a team and to, and to function well as a team. Yeah, I like that. It's something that I, you know, even with starting this podcast, but it really, part of it was to allow for young kids or, or maybe parents who, you know, are looking at their child, you know, boy or girl that's playing hockey or maybe another sport. And they're thinking about the development, you know, similar to, you know, the way my dad did. My dad was, you know, we had hard conversations around my skating ability. Connor, you know, if you want to play like the guys on TV, your skate doesn't look like that. We got to, we got to get you with the right, you know, person or coach. Um, you know, puck skills. Are you shooting the puck hard enough? Are you doing these things? Uh, but there's also a personal development side. Like you have to be humble enough to engage in that self-reflection. You know, you have to be, uh, have to have a, a real sense of what you bring to the room so that you can be dynamic enough. Hockey, pro hockey particularly has this, like, there's this unique give and pull between, I, or I have to show up as my strengths and, and what I've always been in the game, but I've got to tailor them enough to what this team, this coach needs for the year. And, and particularly on the, on a smaller scale for today. Uh, and I don't know if that's something in the first half of my career, I really spent a lot of time trying to develop was how can I be a leader in the room today? How can I be a better teammate? What do I think the team really needs? And I just was at a place where I wasn't picking my head up and trying to see what other people needed. I was trying to swim myself. You know, I was trying to stay in the league myself and, and figure my own game out. And I'm still doing that. I think, uh, you know, the past couple of years I've had, you know, some injuries and, you know, some high points in that year and then some low points, but, um, you know, it's definitely something I'll, you know, try and bring a little bit on a more consistent basis, you know, moving forward. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the guys, if you think, you know, look across sport in your league and in other leagues, like the guys that started really promising and then flamed out early, a lot of times are the guys who, who won't open themselves up to input, right? They're, they're, they're just, you know, it's their way or the highway. And I think that when somebody takes that position and they're not comfortable taking 
soliciting, much less taking feedback on their, you know, how they could be better. I think they, they sort of reach a, an early peak and, you know, and then they struggle and then they start to fail and then they quit, right? Or they get dropped. And, and so I think that part of, part of really maximizing your potential has to be the, the willingness to look at your own uh, vulnerabilities, weak spots and ask for help, right? To shore them up. Um, because that's the only way that you keep growing. And, and if you, if you conversely, if you are open to, to feedback and you do have a realistic, you know, appraisal of, of your, your limitations and your weak spots, you can reach out, find mentors, right? Get, get help from, from whatever your skating coach, from a strength conditioning specialist, like whatever, wherever your the chinks in your armor are, you know, ignoring them doesn't make them go away. It only makes them get worse, right, with time. And so instead, you need to be like, hey, I got, I got something I need to, you know, buff out here and weld in a, a new plate so that I can be, you know, my armor will be better than it was before and not feel bad uh, or intimidated to admit, you, you know, that, hey, I got some stuff I need to work on. Because if you look at most of the epic, you know, legends of sport, most of them were people who absolutely, you know, went, they, they, they left no stone unturned about how they could get better. Some of them do all kinds of kooky stuff, right, in, in their exploration processes. But over time, you know, that pays off. Do you have any practices or mentors, I guess, that have helped you remain open-minded and, and sort of humble enough to know where your strengths and weaknesses are and when to get out of your own way? Well, I mean, I've had a lot of good mentors and that, the, you know, the military tends to have a, have a mentoring tradition so you kind of, you know, from the time you join a unit, you, you either get assigned or you adopt, you know, the one or two guys in the unit that, are, that you're going to look to as mentors. And so I kind of came up with, with that. So I've had a lot of, of great mentors in my business career. I developed mentors when I was at Stanford with the, the staff, you know, there that I've, that I've continued to lean on. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, in terms of, of staying humble, I mean, like, life keeps handing you ass whoopings, right? And if you're paying attention, how, how could you not be humble? I mean, I, I you know, I've, I've probably made a lot more mistakes than I've made brilliant decisions. Um, and those all hurt. And as long as you're paying attention, like you don't forget those. And so, you know, I, I mean, ego is a, is, is a double-edged sword, right? If you don't have enough of it, you'll never get anywhere. If you have too much of it, you'll never get anywhere. And so, so it's finding that it's finding that that mid zone where you're confident in your abilities and headstrong, you know, to a certain extent in in your beliefs of, of how to achieve your best performance. But you're also not so egotistical that, you know, you lose focus of the broader team objectives or that you you convince yourself, you know, to believing that you're you're omnipotent and, and, and invincible and, and therefore cannot open yourself up to advice from other people. That's a losing path, right? And you, so you got to thread the needle between the two of them. And it's not easy because, because, uh, you know, guys that are, that are and gals as well, that are alpha type, you know, performers. Yeah. They all have big egos. It's, it's, it's part of the ticket to the dance, right? We all do. And, and you just have to have to figure out how to keep yours in check. Yeah, there was a quote above our, uh, you know, where we'd fill our water bottles up at the development team, Team USA. And he used to say, I think it was a Jim Collins quote. And it was like, good is the enemy of great. 
And it was something that I always took with me and started to remember as I, as I kind of came up through the league and I would keep tabs on players. Like, okay, I think, you know, maybe there were guys I was playing against, uh, you know, in junior, I'd be like, okay, I, I can see that player. I think he's got, you know, good NHL package. I think I'll see him, you know, down the road, you know, when I'm able to make it. And, you know, it's interesting where once a certain player believes that they are particularly good at something that kind of signifies the day that they stop learning, they stop practicing it at the same rate they did before, before they realized it was good. You know, so like, well, that's one of the things that I asked earlier in my career, like, what do you do? Well, I say I, I skate well. And now I'm at a point where I'm seeing how fast the NHL, the NHL game is getting. It's like, I'm a good skater. Not good enough. Like it, it's gotta, it's gotta get better at a, at a rate that, you know, maybe I'd always worked on my skating, but now I really got to work on it because this game's getting quick. And I think, uh, you know, very similar with hockey. I think my dad was a big one for me, big mentor and, and, you know, developer of how I thought, you know, competitively in the game. I've had some good coaches, uh, you know, leaders. It's not as, I wonder if it's as open as it is in the military. Cause I think in hockey, it's a little bit, um, not as obvious the mentorship sometimes that's going on. Like it's almost on the responsibility of the younger player to take note, you know, cause if, if a younger player seems to come in, like they know it all, or, you know, that, that, you know, they're too good to be told anything. Older guys aren't going to bend over backwards to try and help you. Like you want to, you want to be stubborn and, and run yourself right out of the league. That's fine. Like, I don't want to play with that kind of guy anyway, you know? So there's a little bit of a, a give and take there where you've got to show up with the stuff, knowing you're good enough to play every day, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned from, you know, some of those older players, if, if you're willing to Ask for sure. Really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think as an older player, right, you really want to start. I mean, I, I, I don't know how many more, how many more years, you know, you hope to have in the league where you mid career, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I want to play till I'm 40. That's what I say. So I'm 26. So I mean, in hockey, man, that's a, in hockey, and, that's a, that's a big ass, you know, right? I'm in, I'm into some, uh, you know, I'm into the longevity stuff and, and, you know, the, the training and, I'm pretty investigative that way. And, you know, I'm going to be as innovative as I have to be to, you know, stay in the league as, as long as I can. Cause I hear so that, you, right. I hear all the older guys say, you know, they, they don't come to the rink like spring chickens. Like they're not, you know, you know, bouncing on each toe after game 60, you know, they're, they're doing this out of the car with their second venti, you know, uh, coffee on the way to the <laughs> rink. And I still admire the the hell out of it. Like it's incredible. You know, guys played, you know, I played with Travis Zajac, uh, Patrick Marlowe's got like, 1700 games and you're just thinking to yourself like how has this guy withstood that level of punishment and I think one of the things that I was able to learn early in my career was okay these older guys clearly have some physical challenges like they've gone through uh, war they put their body through hell um, I need to prepare for that and keep the mileage off the best I can and uh yeah, it's been a fun, it's a fun puzzle. I try to solve it every day. Yeah. Well, I would guess that the older guys, um, that, that are, that are still in the league have also probably been really diligent in all their maintenance, right. And yeah. taking care of themselves. Cause that's such a physical game. And, and as they go along, like the, the point I was going to make is that I think that, you know, the older you get in your, in your respective profession, the more that you can and should be offering your perspective as a mentor because you know certainly a guy that's been a league for 
10 years has a lot to offer to somebody who's coming in. And I think that that's that example that I was talking about before. You just got to keep redefining your goal set. You know, maybe you're not going to pass 35 ever be the fastest guy on the ice anymore, right? So having that as your goal is just going to be self-defeating. If instead you start to refashion yourself as, hey, I'm more of, of, a, of, an, of a rink general, right? I've got so much experience now. I've seen 1,700 games. I'm going to focus my energies more in that area, right? And, and start to I'm gonna be as fast as I can be, but I'm going to acknowledge that, yeah, I can't skate the same speed that I could when I was 25. And I think that's just, that's one of those, you know, sounds obvious, but it's kind of a process in life that if you're mindful of it, I think you can keep redefining your goals in a way that you can be both successful and happy with that transition, right? That evolution that, that, that is, is going to happen, right? Like there's no one who gets yeah, away from yeah. it. No one. Yeah, no kidding. And so, so for you personally, what's, and we'll end, we'll end here because I want to be respectful of your time, but, um, you know, Randy, what is next for you? What is next for TRX in your world? Well, um, I, uh, you know, this, this whole pesky little COVID uh, virus has really been a, a, I don't know what to call it, a transformational experience. Um, it's, it's put pressure on us in some areas of the business, you know, the commercial side of the fitness industry, the clubs and the athletic training facilities have all gotten flattened. So pre-COVID, you know, half our business was, uh, was commercial and the other half was consumer. Um, now the, you know, for the moment, the percentage is significantly different than that. It's, it's predominantly consumer. Um, but that's given us some opportunities, right? And one of them is that we, we have had to embrace the reality that, that virtual training is is a thing and it's a thing that if you want to be a a a leading brand you're going to have to master that thing so we've been shifting a lot of resources into uh you know developing systems and processes to deliver training virtually uh through you know zoom and other uh, zoom-like technologies and that's that's pretty much it spans our entire business. The, the education that we do for trainers, it's shifted into the virtual realm. The workout content that we sell to consumers, it's shifted into the virtual realm. And that's all great because if you, if you embrace it rather than fight it, one of the things that we've learned is that it vastly, vastly increases your reach, right? Like if you're doing everything in a physical realm, you, you're, you're, you're limited. Right? You have one training center, for instance, or 10 or whatever. Suddenly you go virtual. Well, the internet is infinite. And so we've, we've, um, you know, we're finding that, that simple little things, like here's, a, here's a, a dumb but profound example. You know, maybe in our training center, we, you know, we, we'd, it was packed all the time. We'd get 25 people in there at a time. Well, you run that same class virtually, and suddenly you got people signing on from Israel and Egypt and you know Belarus and Mexico, and you got a you got a, a class that's bigger than the one that you would have had just with internationals. Now, then you've got you know people from all over, every state you know in the union here in the United States, and so we're realizing that there's some scale advantages that um, you know that are that are open to us, and we're leaning into those. So a lot of energy is going into 
virtual training, uh, technologies, virtual training, uh, processes, and figuring out how to deliver a really great experience, you know, to, to our various constituents in, in that realm. Uh, that's one of the areas that we're really, that we're really focused on. And then, then one of the other areas is we watched a lot of um, trainers and coaches over the course of their career struggling with the things that trainers and coaches struggle with. And so we, we've um, spent a lot of time working on solutions to solve those. And we're also launching a big subscription service for training pros to really, it's more, a, it's think more like a, uh, I don't know, Microsoft for business or, or, uh, you know, um, I don't know any of the big enterprise software companies, the way they, they create an entire suite of business services for a variety of different businesses. We're working on that for people who make their living in the training realm. So we're going to try to bring, you know, help, help trainers and coaches build better businesses and reduce some of the frictions in their life. So those are a couple of the, those are a couple of the big things we're working on. And we got a couple more that I can't talk about just yet, but, but I'll tell you when they break. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good, Randy. This was awesome, man. I really appreciate uh, you coming on the Curious Competitor podcast. I had a blast. And you got a friend in hockey, man. If you ever want to come out, watch some guys, you know, try and get in on the four check and punch each other's heads in, I think uh, that might be right oh, yeah. up your alley. I got what you're into. When you start traveling again and get out here, Connor, I'll have to come watch you play. That'll, that'll be good fun. Sounds good. Sounds good. Really appreciate your time, Randy. Yeah, man. It was a pleasure. Good luck to you. And uh, I will be. Uh, I will be an even bigger fan going forward. Now I'll watch Appreciate you uh, move into the next Appreciate phase of your, of your career. Yeah, it's time for me to stop fucking around, frankly. I had a couple <laughs> uh, surgeries the last couple of years and was poised, I thought, you know, game-wise to take uh, the next step. But you know how that goes. Like, you just, sometimes you just got to wait a little bit. Even, you know, Tampa Bay Lightning last year, best God, they were a juggernaut last year, swept in the first round. You know, and then this year they're able to go on and win. Um, I think that pain's just part of it. It's just, it is, it is. And make sure one other piece, one piece of advice I will give you, man, make sure that you enjoy it while you're, while you're in it, because I can tell you, you blink and it's over. And, uh, and, and as hard as, as you want to work and as, as many great things as you want to achieve, make sure that you don't miss the opportunity also to take it all in, right, and appreciate it while you got it. Because I, I, I who would have, you know, I can remember like yesterday, walking, showing up to Bud's, you know, getting ready to take on the biggest challenge that I could ever imagine, uh, you, you know, becoming a Navy SEAL. And God damn, it seemed like I blinked. And I was walking out the gate of the special missions unit and, and I was headed to business school and, you know, 14 and a half years, just like that. Right. So make sure you enjoy it as you're, as you're, as you're rolling, rolling along the ice. Oh, will do. Really appreciate that. First off, I want to say thank you to Randy for, you know, his time and, and sharing his story with us today uh, with me and, and with you, our listener. I do want to talk about a couple of takeaways that though were particularly fun uh, to learn from him during this podcast was number one. He said, extraordinary is a synonym for heart. And that's a, uh, his whole take on that, the whole military background and how they look at challenge as a part of the process and, and as a fun part of the process, something that they really look forward to is something that as athletes, I try to channel. It's maybe not something as totally ingrained in us as, as we you know normally enjoy more of the skill side of that, but just their appreciation for what is hard and, and 
how they look forward to going through this process that is doing something hard to become extraordinary, I think is uh, something Randy embodied, you know, very clearly in this podcast today. Another quote he had was about how he would just focus on the 10 meters of trail in front of him, you know, during buds and not really looking up at the tall task that was, you know, his bigger goals all the time. He really had a way to mentally engage with his goals to make them smaller, more digestible, where he was able to get that funny force of momentum on his side to achieve really big and hard things. And it's clear that, you know, uh, even as an entrepreneur, he's been able to uh, have this self-reflection that's been really fueling for him, uh, no matter what he's going through. And the third piece of advice, you know, that Randy gave to both of us today was be wary of advice. You know, the facts are we're all trying to figure this out. And, and, you know, it's kind of the day I remember really becoming an adult was realizing how difficult other adults had it and how we're all just trying to, even the people that I most looked up to in the world, we're still just trying to figure this whole life thing out, trying to figure out the best way to pursue, you know, their ambitions while balancing or, or at least having checks and balances for the imbalances that comes with pursuing high goals, you know, and also trying to maintain a family life, maintain, you know, physical, mental, spiritual health. I think be wary of advice. Only we are fully aware of our, you know, personal circumstance. And I think uh, as long as we're able to get still and I'm, I'm going to try not to offer two advice here, but usually the answer is within us there somewhere. So to all of our listeners, thank you for joining Randy and I today. Please continue to like, uh, comment, and subscribe to the Curious Competitor podcast. It really helps us continue to grow. Uh, please share with a friend. Uh, a lot of you know leadership tidbits in here, high-performance tidbits in here that if you think of a loved one that you think could benefit from the podcast, please share. Thank you for joining us, and I'll see you again next week.